You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Katen Sheth, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. Asthma is an ever-growing health concern in the United States. It is chronic but treatable. The new asthma treatment guidelines represent a paradigm shift toward control and monitoring. Joining us to discuss what's the best way to follow asthma control is Dr. John Oppenheimer. Dr. Oppenheimer is Director of Clinical Research at Pulmonary and Allergy Associates, as well as Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the New Jersey Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Oppenheimer. Thanks. Well, let's start with how prevalent is asthma in the United States? Well, about 22.5 million people have asthma. That seems like an awful lot, but I think if we look at numbers daily, it's sort of frightening. 5,000 people will end up in the emergency room today. About 1,300 people will be hospitalized, and 11 people on average will die from asthma today. What changes have there been in attitudes towards treating asthma? When we look at studies as to how well we're doing with regard to attaining control, whether it be exacerbation rate, hospitalization, etc., Certainly, we've seen a decrease in mortality, but we still see a lot of hospitalization. So with that, as a background, the newest guidelines, both the GINA International Guidelines as well as the NAEPP Guidelines in the U.S., highlight a change from severity, mild, moderate, severe, to that of control, as somebody well-controlled, poorly controlled. With that in hand, I'm hopeful we can more quickly adapt that is changing therapy when somebody's not doing well. Why do you think they're moving towards this idea of control? I think the movement really is the fact that we have to agree that we've not attained all of our goals. People go through the day having exacerbations. With that said, we certainly need to do a better job, and we have to agree that the prior guideline or paradigm of severity isn't working. So if we move to control and understand that the control may be variable, somebody may be in perfect control this week, but in poor control next week, so we have to adapt a change in medicines to address this quickly. So in a sense, they've taken some of the ideas from other disease states, hypertension, diabetes, trying to adapt that towards asthma? Exactly. I think the analogy is wonderful. I mean, a study by Calhoun looked at people on a placebo arm of a study and followed them over 12 weeks, and they found that on one week, patients may have symptoms every day, while on another week, not at all. So how do we define that person's asthma? Is it severe, having symptoms daily, or is it mild, having symptoms hardly at all? With that said, if somebody gets a cold or they're around the wrong allergen, their disease may significantly exacerbate and we need to address it. Well, can you describe some of the new methods that are being used to describe this control or to monitor asthma? I think that's one of the biggest problems we have. We've now said that, you know, the litmus test is control. The problem is I don't know that we have one perfect measure of control. We can look at things like spirometry. They're wonderful tools. In a study by Shingo, they looked to see how well does spirometry correlate with other measures, like symptoms or beta agonies. They found they didn't correlate well at all. So with that said, people are now looking to newer litmus tests or barometers, things like looking at ACT, the asthma control test. For those that aren't familiar with it, it's really a five-question self-assessment tool that's been validated. And what it does is it looks retrospectively what level of control people have had over the past four weeks. And a perfect score would be 25. Those that are 19 or less indicate that there's not perfect control and they need to address with changing therapy or potentially trying to figure out what the trigger might be to moving forward. We're also looking at newer tools to measure inflammation. Certainly a study by Sant several years ago showed us that if we were to compare 
treating people based upon regular guideline care, that is spirometry and symptoms, and compare it to, say, looking at something like BHR, looking at bronchial hyperresponsiveness. The bronchial hyperresponsiveness group required more meds but had less exacerbation rate over time. So with that said, people are now saying, we need to find a better measure of control by thinking about inflammation. And one of the tools that's evolving is ENO, or exhaled nitric oxide. Well, let's come back to this asthma control test. Certainly, it's in the new guidelines. How are you using it in your practice or in some of the research that you certainly have done in asthma? Well, you know, I think it's a wonderful tool. It allows the patient to do it in the waiting room. So while they're waiting, they'll come to you with a score. I look at this plus spirometry and plus some sort of specialized questions that each of us has in our own repertoire to help me determine what level of control a person is in. Now, what's interesting, and I mentioned this before, is not everything correlates. So when we looked at the recent practice parameters on asthma, Jim Lee, myself, and the practice parameter committee, we agreed that there's no one measure, and probably the best tool is using something like ACT and some objective measure of lung function like spirometry in tandem. What are some of the difficulties with patients taking the ACT, or what kind of resistance are you meeting, if any? It depends upon the person's comfort level. I mean, obviously, can they read? They're validated tools for both children and adults. And the other problem is that there's a new level of research that's highlighting the fact that when people are depressed or anxious, they may have higher scores because they perseverate over their symptoms. So this isn't a perfect tool by any means. Another thing worth mentioning, a really interesting study by Magdal several years ago in CHEST highlights that up to about 25% of people are poor perceivers of dyspnea. So in essence, they may feel totally fine. If you ask them, are you needing beta agonists? Are you waking up at nighttime? They'll say no to all the above. But when you look at their lung functions, they're diminished. In essence, they can't perceive their dyspnea. And what's really scary is this group of people has increased morbidity, ER visits, hospitalizations, and increased mortality. So we really need to think about the fact that not every asthmatic is the same. Do you think the ACT score is going to be something like the A1C for diabetics? I think it may be one tool. It alone, I don't think, stands. I think we need to look at spirometry also. But I think ACT in tandem with spirometry is probably as close as we have to hemoglobin A1C right now. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Katen Sheff, and joining me today to discuss the best ways to follow asthma control is Dr. John Oppenheimer, Director of Clinical Research at Pulmonary and Allergy Associates, as well as Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the New Jersey Medical School. Well, as we talk about ACT a little bit more, can people just put it in their waiting room and have patients fill it out? Is that a fair way to do that? That's the way we're using it. We actually, when we have an asthmatic on their clipboard, sits the ACT, and while they're waiting and you know, filling out whatever paperwork we have, it takes just a few minutes and we have an ACT score by the time they come to visit us in the back. So very useful, very quick information. What about our primary care colleagues? Can they be using it as a screening tool for maybe picking up people who have asthma or who don't? I think it may be a very reasonable tool, as well as those that have asthma, following them over time. I really encourage my primary care colleagues to put a little A on the charts of those that have asthma and follow this. I realize that they've got very busy schedules, and while people are waiting in the waiting room, it gives them a wonderful chance to do something productive. I look at ACT and spirometry almost as a report card that I share with the patient. By the time they come back, I have a sense of where their ACT score is, where their spirometry is, and from that, we can build upon it, i.e., if ACT and spirometry looks wonderful, let's talk about stepping down. If ACT and or spirometry looks like there's a level of instability, what are we doing wrong? Is there adherence? Is there some other comorbidity? Are they needing to increase the dose of meds? So it acts as a wonderful tool for me to move forward. 
Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier was exhaled nitric oxide as a marker of inflammation. Does that help us with better outcomes and control for asthma? You know, we're all looking, you mentioned the hemoglobin A1C, we're all looking for that perfect glucometer and hemoglobin A1C analogy. I don't think we have them yet in asthma. We were very hopeful that ENO would be, for those that don't know much about ENO, it's a secretagogue of the eosinophil. So in essence, it's exhaled breath condensate being analyzed for ENO, exhaled nitric oxide. And it seems to correlate with inflammation. Certainly, once we begin an inhaled steroids, you can see it significantly diminish in its value. The problem is the preliminary studies look very impressive. It actually reduced the amount of medicines, the amount of inhaled steroids required over time by allowing a quicker titration of therapy. The problem is in follow-up studies, the most recent being by Stan Zeffler, it didn't look like it really provided such a wonderful outcome. That is, that it didn't reduce exacerbation rate or meds required. Is there another marker of inflammation or another way that we can measure it to help our patients and get better control? Well, you know, that's the million-dollar question. People are looking at acid content and other exhaled breath markers. I don't think we have a better one than ENO right now. You know, I'd go back to ENO and say maybe one of the problems with ENO is the fact that it is too quick a change. By that, I mean maybe ENO should be our glucometer at home, and if we can develop newer units, and there's been some preliminary research that looks very impressive, if we can have these units at home and people can measure their ENO on a daily basis, if we see a change in ENO, it could be the stimulant for them to call a doctor and institute intervention more quickly. You know, peak flows we believe to be that tool, but unfortunately a study by Sonia Buse shows that peak flows didn't really add a lot to actual patient symptoms. So should people be doing peak flows at home? Well, at least a study by Sonia Buse would have us believe that it may not be the answer. I might argue that in my group of patients that are poor perceivers of dyspnea, since they can't perceive that loss of control, any tool I have would be helpful. And since I don't have an ENO at home right now, I'm instituting peak flows. But I think more data is needed. In the guidelines, are there other ways that the guidelines recommend that we should follow control? I mean, there are other validated tools beyond ACT. There's the ATAC. There's some other tools that are being investigated also. But I think what the guidelines as a whole keep reinforcing is that there's no one perfect tool. We need to look at a tool like ACTOR, ask questions. How often are you using beta agonist? Are you waking up at nighttime? Have you had an exacerbation since the last visit? And look at some objective measure of lung function, such as spirometry. Put all of these various points together and from that develop a sense of level of control and build either increasing therapy or tapering down therapy based upon results. As we look at these questionnaires, and you mentioned a couple of other ones other than the asthma control test, the ATAQ and the ACQ, are there differences in them? Is one easier to use than the other? You know, each have their proponents. I think what's nice about the ACT is it's a very small test. It's been well validated. There's also a tool for children, so it makes it quite useful. I think that each person has the tool that they're most familiar with, but as a whole, I think we're seeing the ACT used most commonly in offices. So what I'm hearing you is, is one of these ways to really look at control in these new guidelines is getting these validated questionnaires in front of our patients so that we know how they're doing. Are there other things that you do besides spirometry and the questionnaires to try to follow this control over time? Well, I think those are the major tools I'm using right now. We are using ENO in my office. We're doing some research with it, and it's been a valuable tool in some patients. I can't say everybody. You know, part of the problem is we look at asthma as being one illness, and you know all too well it's really a heterogeneous disease. Some describe it as multiple syndromes layered with one name we call asthma. Some patients are upregulators of eosinophils, while some may not be. So the tools like ENO that we're using may not be helpful at all. Are we using a sledgehammer approach when we just recommend peak flow or spirometry? And 
are some of these newer ideas that you're mentioning, new ways that we're going to be able to sort out those different asthmatics, you think? I'm hopeful. I think the, the really hottest topic in asthma right now is the fact that people are looking at phenotypes. They're looking at different, shall we say, patient characteristics to help us choose the appropriate therapy. An example is somebody that's got Samter's triad, nasal polyposis, aspirin sensitivity, as well as requiring steroids. These patients probably are the highest leukotriene producers, and they may do very, very well with a leukotriene modifier. Somebody that smokes, as an example, the recent smog study, shows that these people don't do very well with inhaled steroids or steroids as a whole. So I think that we're going to really become much more sophisticated in our stratification of the illness asthma. With that in hand, I'm hopeful we'll have better measures based upon illness. As an example, somebody that has Samter's triad, maybe we should be looking at exhaled leukotrienes. Maybe that's the best tool for them. It's, I think, a little bit down the line yet before we see it implemented clinically, but I'm really hopeful it will occur in the next decade. As we've talked about control, I think certainly, you know, you've added some very, very important things on this new paradigm, but let's come back around to what can people do to prevent asthma from developing? Well, that's the million-dollar question. You know, there's some very elegant data that possibly things as simple as treating eczema more aggressively. Others show that treating allergic rhinitis with immunotherapy early on in disease, and still others are looking at Shall we reduce sensitivity in the very beginning? Maybe all of these things may help reduce asthma. Others argue that possibly the hygiene hypothesis, maybe we should let our kids deal with common colds and other illnesses of an infectious nature and change the paradigm of TH2 towards TH1 early on. But again, I think we have to wait a few years to really understand what this data means in the clinical setting. The confusing thing has always been, though, that when the kids get a cold, they start wheezing and they go on maybe to develop asthma. Yes, one of the many things that's bothersome, isn't it? Some would argue it's because they're already in the TH2 cycle, and that viral infection just upregulates the TH2 response. Had they been infected possibly earlier and more frequently, mounting a TH1 response, they may not have upregulated their TH2 response with viral illness. As I said, I think that we still have some details to work out on this whole concept. So what people are seeing clinically doesn't go against the hygiene hypothesis. What you're really saying, there's a lot about timing for perhaps when they get the infection? Possibly, and some might argue also that there's a timing and a genetic predisposition. It's a very complicated scenario, isn't it? I'd like to thank my guest from the New Jersey Medical School, Dr. John Oppenheimer. Dr. Oppenheimer, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM157. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit ACAAI.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.